0: together. Amazing love. It is amazing love that the Son of God, the the Christ, should die for us. We pray as we look at the word and as we take the sacrament this morning that we would be both amazed and instructed and determined to live as a result of that amazing sacrifice. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please do sit. Well as you sit down I think you'll find it helpful uh, to turn your Bibles uh, to, well we're going to begin in Luke chapter 24, uh, 1 Samuel 21 is our passage for uh, the morning but we're going to start in Luke 24 in just a moment, uh, that's page 1062 if you want to uh, get there ahead of time. Uh, having abandoned Islam to follow Christ, the plight of the Afghan man Abdul Rahman has rightly captured the attention of the world's media, not to mention the thoughts and prayers of many Christians. I wonder if you've been thinking about him and indeed been reflecting on his, own, on his situation. As I've considered his situation, I've been challenged to be more courageous in my own stand for Christ. After all, anything that I suffer here in Britain will pale into insignificance to all that he has suffered And as I've been thinking about his own situation, I've wondered if I would be prepared to face the death penalty for Christ or be imprisoned for Christ or be deported, leaving behind everything I knew just because I followed Jesus Christ. I'm not sure that I would be that courageous when it came to it. One thing's for sure, in Abdul Rahman's shoes, you have to be certain that Jesus is the real thing. If you're not sure of those things, then when push comes to shove, when you're in his situation, uh, you're not going to go to the death uh, penalty for him. Now that is true for Abdul Rahman, it will be true for us if we're in that situation, and it was certainly the issue for uh, Jesus' first disciples just after Jesus' death. They had to be sure that Jesus was the real thing, because Jesus having died, it looked as if he wasn't. How could the Christ Suffer death. The Christ, God's king in God's world, dying. Well, that's where Luke 24 comes in. Do you remember how despondent the first disciples were after Jesus' death? They were afraid. John tells us they were huddled in a a locked room for fear of the Jews and and they were confused as they believed that the Christ would be triumphant, an all-conquering king. They couldn't conceive of a Christ who would suffer and die. Which is why the resurrected Jesus had to teach them. Just look, uh, if you will, at Luke chapter 24 and uh, verses 44 to 46, page 1062. Luke chapter 24, Jesus speaking to the disciples. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures and what did he teach them he told them this is what is written the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached the Christ will suffer he said the same thing to the two on the road to Emmaus just a little bit earlier again chapter 24 this time verse 25 he said to them how foolish you are And how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and enter his glory? And then beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. You see, Jesus went systematically through the Old Testament to show these two believers on the Emmaus Road that the Christ must suffer. I wonder if you've ever wondered, like me, what that Bible study from Jesus would have consisted of. Well, for the theologians among you, I wonder how you would teach from the Old Testament that the Christ must suffer. It's a challenge, isn't it? Going through the whole of the Old Testament. You may think of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, but where do you go after that? See verse 27? Jesus went through Moses and all the prophets to show them that the Christ must suffer. I wonder if we could do the same. And this is not a purely academic exercise. I think of a friend of mine who is Jewish and I'm looking forward to the day when we can talk more about Jesus being the Christ. How will I do that from the scriptures? And especially if he asks me to justify how one who suffered so much can be the Christ. It's not an academic question, it's crucial in evangelism and it's far from being an academic question for someone like Abdul Rahman. How can he be sure that Jesus is the Christ? He needs to be sure, doesn't he? You and I need to be sure if we're going to suffer. We need to be absolutely certain that Jesus is not a pretender to the throne. That the Old Testament said that this is exactly what he would be like. And then we need to be sure because we need to realise that suffering now is actually part of the Christian life. Following in his footsteps well, with that in mind, turn with me to 1 Samuel 21, page 293. And in this chapter, and indeed in the chapters that follow 1 Samuel 21, we see in a significant chunk of the Old Testament that the Christ will suffer. It's page 293. It I will certainly help me if you had it open in front of you. I think it will help you as well. Page 293. Now, before we look closely at the text, let me stop here for a moment. We've got the Bible open in front of us, but before we dive in, allow me to explain my rules of interpretation as I come to this section of the Bible. Otherwise, you'll never know why I've come to the conclusions I've come to. You see, this is the sort of chapter that can leave us totally confused. I wonder in your quiet times if you've read 1 Samuel 21 and you've asked, well, what do I do with this? Well, interesting story, but so what? What do we learn from it? What are we meant to learn from it? Especially those early verses in chapter 21 where David is, if I can put it this way, lying through his teeth. He concocts a far-fetched story that has not a thread of truth in it whatsoever. Our temptation is to moralise. Is the moral of the story that in accentuating circumstances it's okay to spin a yarn like this? or as we get to chapter 22 and we see the way that Doeg the Edomite slaughters Ahimelech the priest is the moral of the story that if we lie, others will pay well the moral's changing all the time, isn't it? what do we learn from this? it's impossible for us to know if we just moralise because the the text doesn't comment on David's actions it just reports what happens so what will we do with a chapter like this? well, remember Jesus' words in Luke 24 They're a terrific starting point when we come to any Old Testament passage and not least of all to a narrative like this. Remember Luke 24? Jesus explained to his disciples what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. The scriptures are to teach us about Jesus and not least of all in this section. You see, as I look at David, I'm looking at the Lord's anointed. We learnt that back in 1 Samuel chapter 16. David became the Lord's anointed, literally the Christ. Now once I've stated it like that, it's obvious who he's pointing to, isn't it? David is the Christ, the anointed, who points to the Christ to come. Just as when I read about the Old Testament sacrifices, I'm to be thinking about the one true sacrifice to come. Indeed, we will remember that perfect sacrifice as we take bread and wine in a moment. And when I read about the high priest in the Old Testament, I know from the book of Hebrews that it teaches me about the great high priest, Jesus. And when I learn about the temple, again, the book of Hebrews tells me, I am learning more about Jesus, the one in whom the fullness of God dwells. So here in 1 Samuel, in David, I am looking at the Lord's anointed. David isn't the perfect Christ any more than the Old Testament sacrifices were perfect but David points me to the Christ nonetheless and in this section in David I can see that the Christ must suffer how he was despised and rejected by those he came to save well last week we left uh, chapter 20 uh, with David on the run from Saul Saul the other king the king who was in power but the king who had been rejected by God. Saul then is the other Christ or if I can put it this way the Antichrist out to destroy the Lord's anointed. And so from chapter 21 onwards we see David, the Lord's anointed suffering in danger from Saul and in danger from the world and it reminds us of the Christ who was hated by the world and who told us if the world hates me, it will hate you also. As David runs from, our, from Saul in our section this morning, David runs to five different places, giving us five different scenes. Scene one then, if you're taking notes. The Christ suffers, but the Lord meets his needs. Scene one is chapter 21, verses one to nine. Look at verse one. David went to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? David runs to Nob, which is two miles north of Jerusalem, and to Ahimelech the priest who immediately knows something's wrong. Do you see it there in verse 1? Ahimelech trembled and asked David why he was on his own. He smelt a rat, something's wrong, David shouldn't be here on his own. And I doubt David's rather flimsy story does anything to calm Ahimelech's concerns. Verse 2, David answered Ahimelech the priest, the king charged me with a certain matter and said to me, no one is to know anything about your mission and your instructions. As for my men, I've told them to meet me at a certain place. It's all very vague, shades of James Bond on his majesty's service. I'm on a top secret government mission, says David. It's so secret that no one knows anything about it. Even the men have just gone to a certain place. It all reminds me of the time I interviewed a man called Tim Wambunya. He's now an ordained Anglican minister, but he was a very high ranking officer in the Kenyan military. Not that I fully know what he did. See, when I met him, he was uh, on a theological placement at St. Peter's Harold Wood, the church that I was at at the time. And as he came for a year to spend a year with us at the church, in front of the church, I interviewed him. I asked him a few questions, and I said, So, Tim, what did you used to do? I worked for the Kenyan government. He said, Doing what, Tim? said I. And he was strangely reluctant to go any further. So I pushed him in my questioning, Tim, what exactly did you do? And he calmly turned to me and said, Paul, if I tell you that, I'll have to kill you. (laughs) It's a great line. I really wish I had a job in the past where I could use that line. Now, that's the impression David's giving here. Not that David was actually going to kill anyone, he certainly wouldn't have killed Ahimelech. But he's saying, Look, Ahimelech, don't ask me any questions. This is top secret. Just don't ask. And his apparently top secret government mission was so urgent that David left without any provisions. Tall story, verse 3. Now then, what have you to hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. He had no food and we discover he had no weapon. Look down to verse 8. David asked Ahimelech, don't you have a spear or sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's business was so urgent. Now, whatever we make of the story, and I'm not convinced as I read it, I mean, that's partly because I know the true story, because I've read chapter 20. I know he's on the run from Saul. But even though I know that, I think, well, David, you could have thought up a better story than this. It doesn't convince me. Still, it does point us toward another king who would have nothing in this world. Another king who would have nothing and yet would be provided for by his heavenly father. That is surely the point of verse 6 you see it there? So the priest gave him the consecrated bread since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. David was given, crucially, the bread of the presence. As Dale Ralph Davis in his very helpful commentary says, this bread was a quiet witness that Yahweh sustains his people and supplies their need. That was what the bread of the presence on the table was always meant to show. Yahweh, the Lord, sustains his people and supplies their needs. And so we see that. We see how the Father met the needs of his anointed. Just as he did when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. Then Jesus was able to say to the devil, man does not live on bread alone, knowing that the Lord would meet all his needs. And so he did. And so he does for all those who follow after him. I think of Christian friends of mine who've uh, suffered considerably in this last year. And it is remarkable to see how the Lord has met their needs again and again. How they've been strengthened physically and emotionally. At the courage and resolve they've been given. Uh, One friend said this to me. Before this all happened to me, I never would have thought it possible to cope. But the Lord has met every need as it has arisen. See, in his grace the Lord meets our needs. And here, he even met the needs of David, even as David has been telling such tall stories. It's amazing, isn't it? But then you see it's all his grace. So what of David's lying through his teeth then? Well, again, we must uh, avoid moralising. The writer clearly doesn't intend us to do that, or he'd have given us a comment or two about David's behaviour. So, what do we make of it? Well, in my reading this week, I've been convinced by the thought that David speaks the way he does, so as not to implicate Ahimelech, the priest. You see, if David had told Ahimelech that he was running from Saul, Ahimelech would have been left in a no-win situation. If he'd helped David, he would have been guilty of treason. If he'd rejected David, he would have been rejecting none other than the Lord's anointed. And David didn't want to endanger Ahimelech's life. He didn't want to implicate Ahimelech. And so, despite David's best efforts to protect Ahimelech, verse seven. Now, one of the Saul's one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doeg the Edomite, Saul's head shepherd. It's a chilling verse, a chilling moment in the story. The whole event was seen by Doeg. And we're given all the information we need to know about Doeg to know that this is very bad news. Verse 7, Doeg was one of Saul's men. He was working for the opposition. And verse 7, he was an Edomite, an enemy of Israel. And so it's a chilling moment as we see Doeg spying on the conversation between David and and Ahimelech and our worst fears will be realised in the next chapter as we will see next week as Jason climbs this pulpit Doeg the Edomite was a wicked barbarian he was a man who took pleasure in butchering innocent men, women and children what we'll see next week was as bad as any of the atrocities of ethnic cleansing that we've seen in recent years in Europe no wonder David was keen not to implement Ahimelech. Not that it ultimately helped the priest. But again it reminds us that as we support the Lord's anointed, as we follow the Christ and as we support him in any way, we too will be hated by the world. If they hated me, said Jesus, they will hate you also. That is exactly why we have to be sure that Jesus is the real thing, that he is the Christ Christ. And that's why we shouldn't be at all surprised at the news of Abdu'l-Rahman. They hated Jesus, they'll hate those who follow him. Well that's scene one and so to scene two. And now we travel to Gath. Verses 10 to 15. The Christ suffers at the hands of his enemies but the Lord saves him. Verse 10. That day David fled from Saul and went to Achish king of Gath. And with the daily provision of bread in his rucksack... David picked up Goliath's sword. We read about that in verse 9. And that's what makes verse 10 such a surprise. Here is David turning up in Goliath's hometown holding Goliath's sword. It's a strange place to seek refuge. But it all goes to show how desperate David is. When Achash king of Gath is my best hope I'm in real trouble. And again it reminds us of another who came to his own but his own would not receive him. So David went to his enemies. But there was no safety for him there either. His own did not receive him and his enemies did not receive him, but his enemies recognised who he was. Verse 11. The servants of Achish said to him, Isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Now notice the detail again. They, the the enemies, they called David king of the land. Technically Saul was king of the land but they recognised that David was really the mighty one in Israel. Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. His enemies recognised his authority. Again it reminds us of another one who will come whose authority was recognised by his enemies. Jesus, Jesus, was recognised by the demons, no less. Do you remember in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus preached in the synagogue, a man possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. It is very striking, isn't it? Jesus came among his own people and they didn't recognise him, but the demons did. That's exactly what's happening here. As David fled to Gath, so his enemies knew exactly who he was. And that terrified David, verse 12. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he feigned insanity in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. While well, desperate times call for desperate measures. It was a dangerous and dark time for David and he wrote a song about it. We call it Psalm 34. And David says in that psalm, this poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. You see, at Gath, David was arrested and confined. Verse 13 describes David, see the detail, in their hands. Yeah, he was put probably in prison. But, Psalm 34, the Lord saved him. Well, David's own actions were unconventional to say the least there in verse 13. Like a teenager deserving an asbo, David took out his aerosol can and wrote graffiti on the walls. And like a man in need of sectioning, David dribbled down his beard. Verse 14, Achish said to his servants, Look at this man, he is insane. Why bring him to me? Am I short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? Well, it's a remarkable story. And again, it reminds us of another who would be considered mad. Remember in Mark chapter 3 when Jesus' own family said of Jesus, he's out of his mind, he's a madman. They said it to Jesus. And when we follow, they'll say it to us. We've seen it in these last weeks. They said it of Abdul Rahman. And they'll say it to you and me. Serve Christ and people will think you're mad. Give up a good career and your family will say you're bonkers. Give away your money for gospel ministry and your friends will think you're nuts. Be sold out and uncompromising for Christ and people will think you've got a screw loose. Come to church on a Sunday and people will think you must be an idiot. You could be at home reading the paper. Achish king of Gath certainly thought David was a sandwich short of a picnic, didn't he? And not wanting any more madmen in his country, David's detention ceased and he was allowed to go slobbering on his way. And so we move to scene three, Adullam's cave. And here in scene three, in chapter two, verses one and two, we see that the Christ suffers. But as he suffers... He welcomes the outcast. Chapter 22, verse 1. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brother and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. Now, do you see, do you get the picture of what's going on in chapter 21 and 22? From Jerusalem to Nob to Gath and now to a cave. David was on the run and again it reminds us of another who had nowhere to lay his head. And all the more it reminds us of that one as we see who gathered around him. The social riffraff, verse 2, the distressed, the indebted, the discontented. Or if I can put it this way, the tax collectors and sinners. The lowly and despised of this world, those who are nothing in this group there were not many of noble birth well that's exactly what we should have expected to see when the Christ came but of course the religious leaders of Jesus' day didn't like it that he spent time with tax collectors and sinners if only they'd read their Bible if only they'd read this section they would have known that the Lord's anointed would be one like this who would gather and embrace sinners. David, the Lord's anointed, welcomed the outsider and he cared for those around him, as we see in scene 4, when we learn that the Christ suffered, but the Lord provided for his family. Chapter 22, verses 3 and 4. Once again, David is on the move, verse 3. From there David went to Mizpah in Moab and he said to the king of Moab, would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? So he left them and uh, with the king of Moab and they stayed with him as long as David was in the stronghold. You see, David's family had joined him in verse 2 and is it any wonder they knew exactly what Saul was like they knew that if they were connected to David their lives would be in danger And then verse 3 is such a tender moment. Here is David running for his life. All he has is a cave, a borrowed sword and a bunch of riffraff as his friends. He could be forgiven for complaining that his life is falling apart. And yet in his time of greatest need and personal suffering, David makes provision for his ageing parents. He didn't want them to slum it in a cave. Hence his trip to Mizpah and the king of Moab. And once again, who does it remind you of? Does it not remind you of another king who while he was in his greatest need, suffering as no one has ever suffered on the cross, he had the presence of mind to tell John to treat Mary as his own mother. That's what we'd expect of the Christ, having seen David, the Lord's anointed, doing the same here. And before we leave scene four, don't miss the detail. Verse three, David went to the king of Moab to find safety for his parents. Very important. Moab was the birthplace of Ruth. Ruth, the Moabites, who was, of course, David's great-grandmother. That's the point at the end of Ruth chapter four. Here again is a sign of the Lord's amazing provision. Years before, the Lord fashioned David's ancestry so as to help him in time of need and so to scene 5 where we learn that the Christ suffered just as the Lord's prophets declared chapter 22 and verse 5 just when you thought David was safe in a cave with his family cared for and a band of brothers around him in the stronghold just when it seems safe verse 5 the prophet Gad said to David don't stay in the stronghold Go into the land of Judah. And so David left. See, through the prophet, the Lord told David to go back to Judah. David, you see, as the Lord's anointed, cannot avoid his conflict with Saul, the Antichrist. And the same shocking truth hits us as Jesus, the Christ, turned to walk towards Jerusalem. Do you remember the story? Mark chapter 10 verse 32, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Well of course they were astonished and afraid because they were heading up to Jerusalem and they knew that if they were going to Jerusalem that sparks would fly and Jesus would die. And Jesus himself knew that. Mark 10, verse 33. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him, and three days later he will rise. The Christ must suffer. The scriptures teach that. And we see that in this section in 1 Samuel. And if we're to follow him, then we too will suffer. It is the nature of the kingdom of God. Suffering now and glory later. We cannot avoid it if we're going to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul said as he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Anyone who will live a a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Will. Of course, many Christians do try and avoid it, but it's not possible to be godly and avoid suffering. It is the nature of the Christian life. And so we've got to be absolutely sure that we are following the right one as we see him dying on a cross. Because it is so hard to choose to be a Christian. It is hard to make that choice in Afghanistan. And it's hard to make that choice here. Not least of all because so many in the church, in the wider church, will tell you that you don't need to suffer. And let's face it, who wants to suffer? Who wants to share in Christ's sufferings, as Paul puts it? Who wants to leave Saul to follow David? David's on the run. But of course, if you know what we know, you would be a fool to stay with Saul. We know that the Christ did suffer, just as the Scriptures promised. But just as the Scriptures promised, after his suffering, he went to glory As it is written, he not only suffered, but he rose from the dead on the third day. And as a result, repentance and forgiveness of sins is preached in his name and freely available to all. And we would be fools to miss out on that. Forgiveness and the guarantee of all eternity to be spent in his presence and free from death and mourning and crying and pain and all suffering. So yes, it's hard to suffer. But it's worth suffering. Abdul Rahman knows that and he is an example to us as we face, well, whatever we face tomorrow morning. Abdul Rahman had to be absolutely sure that he was following the real Christ, the one who suffers. And we need to as well. And that's where 1 Samuel really helps us. The scriptures teach us that the Christ must suffer. And as we take bread and wine, we'll be encouraged to know that we're following the real Christ. suffering christ the one who suffered for us not just as an example but much more that we might be forgiven the question is are we absolutely sure of those truths only when we are will we stand up and suffer too let's pray together